0: Our text this morning is Acts chapter 8, verses 1b through 3. We'll read those once more. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. After the sermon, we will sing hymn 83, hymn 83 after the sermon. beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. well, We have what in our text looks to be a very damaging setback to the church in Jerusalem. The situation seems really, really bad, doesn't it? Especially if we think about the incredible trajectory that the church was on before we got to this chapter. Everything was going really well in the church in Jerusalem, among the community of believers. If we had started at chapter 1 and made our way all the way through here, we would notice a couple of things. We would have seen this constant explosion of growth. We would have read about the beautiful fellowship of believers, the love and fellowship that existed in the church and the shining reputation that the church enjoyed in the city of Jerusalem. Christ was certainly being exalted through that community of believers, the new and growing church, the followers of Jesus Christ. It was very well with the church. And then suddenly it looks like everything changes. Stephen's execution, it seems to mark the point where everything suddenly falls apart. There's this gigantic escalation of opposition that seems to break the church. And we can see the increase in that intensity as we make our way through uh, the previous chapters. In chapter, four, in chapter 4, when Peter and John uh, had healed someone in the temple grounds, there was just a warning that was given to the apostles. In chapter 5, there was a similar warning, but then that warning was accompanied by a very violent whipping. In chapter 7 the chapter just before this Stephen is murdered and this is the very first act of martyrdom in the church and now here in chapter 8 it escalates to full-scale persecution the church is being attacked very outwardly and so the church scatters this is what we read in Uh, chapter 8 verse 1 they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles Saul began to destroy the church or Saul was ravaging the church as we read in verse 3 so it appears that it is not well with the church things have gone completely off the rails here or has it? that's a question that we have to answer this morning. Is it well with the church or not? We have to try to see very clearly what's actually going on here. And when we do this, we'll actually be able to understand that somehow, somehow, the church is being blessed by God, even through the violence that evil men are doing against her. Now, how is that possible? Well, let's move through our text and We'll see what God is up to. What is God doing here in this passage? In verse 3, we read there, Saul was ravaging the church. What exactly does that mean? Is the church being destroyed? That's actually uh, one of the ways that this uh, verse gets translated. Saul was ravaging the church or Saul was destroying the church But the tense that's used here can even be interpreted um, in a couple of additional ways. Um, the, The imperfect tense that's used here can be translated in this way. Saul began to destroy the church or he began to ravage the church. Or it can even describe an attempt at something. So Saul was attempting to destroy the church or attempting to ravage the church. And if we are very consistent theologically, then we would have to say that the, the last option of translation there would probably be the most accurate of the options that we have. Saul was trying to do this to the church. The question is, is he successful? Is he able to destroy the church? Well, we know, we confess that the church cannot be destroyed. The church cannot be set back. God's plans, God's care for the church cannot be frustrated. In Matthew 16, verse 18, after Peter confesses the Christ, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says to him, you are Peter, on this rock I will build my church. And then he says, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The church cannot be destroyed. And we can see in ensuing chapters that the church, those who love Jesus Christ, the church does not crumble. It doesn't disappear. They continue to function. They continue to defy the opposition. We can see this in verse two of our text. We read "Their devout men buried Stephen. That's fine. But then we read there that they made great lamentation over him. What does that mean? Well, according to custom, if if someone was stoned to death you could give him a burial that was fine that was there was no issue with that but there was a very strict rule that you may not mourn this person if somebody was judged to deserve execution by stoning if that was the the judgment that was pronounced against him well then the conclusion is that this man is very evil and He is not worthy of our sorrow. This is someone who had to die. This is someone that we had to be rid of. And so if you would mourn very deeply for this person after he was executed, then this was a defiance of those who stood in judgment over this person. This is a very public protest of Stephen's execution. So yes, in the very first quick reading of this passage, it does seem very bad for the church in Jerusalem, but we're getting a little bit of a different picture now. So the church isn't being completely destroyed, and secondly, the the church is still standing in defiance. The church is is opposing those who oppose Christ. We read also in verse 1, it says here that they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So all were scattered. What exactly does that mean? What does it mean? When Luke writes here, all, does this mean that every last believer had to leave Jerusalem and there was no church left? Well, no, that's not the case. That's not the case. We can see that for a couple of reasons. In the first place, Luke is using this word in a somewhat figurative way. He uses it in a similar way in in uh, chapter 9, verse 35. We read there, This is when Peter is going about preaching. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed. (laughs) Who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. And then we read there, all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. The question is, Does that mean every last person in Lydda became a believer or is it possible that there were still some stragglers, one or two left who didn't believe? Well, the second would be our conclusion. Again, this is a somewhat figure of speech similar to something that that we would do quite frequently. We say all the time things like, you know, such and such a thing happened and everybody in the room gasped or the whole room burst into laughter. Now it's, Entirely possible that there were one or two or three people that weren't laughing, but this speaks about the the group as a collective um, What was true for them as a group so just here like here in Jerusalem? The church in Jerusalem had to scatter by and large the church had to flee from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria but we can also see in uh, Subsequent chapters that the church does not disappear. It remains after Saul's conversion When he returns to Jerusalem, so now Paul, he returns to Jerusalem and after lots of persuasion, he's finally welcomed there. By whom? Well, by the disciples there. So not just the apostles, but the believers, the church there. And in Acts 15, we see that there's actually what we would uh, refer to as a synod. There's a council, the Jerusalem council. And where is it? It's in Jerusalem, the place where the church continues. The church is not destroyed. So some remain, along with the apostles. But most had to flee into the surrounding regions. This is a display of complete devotion to God. Incredible. This is a display of complete devotion to God, a display of love for Jesus Christ. These are people who were willing to... Leave behind everything. Leave behind their homes. Leave behind their livelihood. They chose to do this. Instead of choosing what would have been so much easier, renouncing this new commitment that they had made, this commitment to the way of Jesus. They renounced everything that they were used to, their daily life up to that point. What does that mean for a family? Yanking your kids out of their daily life, taking them away from their friends, from their routines, whatever kind of schooling was in place there, and being being willing to live in sort of a state of limbo, a state of uncertainty for, for however long you have to. You don't know these things. So these are two very different responses that we see, two opposite kind of responses to this persecution. There are some who stay, And who stand their ground against the persecutors. They show themselves very willing to be imprisoned. And others believe that the right thing to do, the responsible thing to do, is to choose to flee the city. Both groups of people are doing this out of complete devotion to God. Love for Jesus Christ. And this is something that can be very instructive for us as well. It's very easy for us to immediately rush to judgment over people who have a different response to a certain hardship than we do. We respond a certain way to hardship. Someone else is responding differently. And the tendency that we can have is to rush into judgment. They are not responding in the godly way that I am responding. We think of the different responses to Restrictions on worship and the general situation that we have presently. There have been many different responses to the difficulty that we have faced. Is there more than one godly way to respond to this? Certainly there is. Certainly there is. We should never assume that because someone's response doesn't happen to match ours, That theirs is therefore less godly and less devoted to Christ. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we may never admonish each other. If someone is acting in an ungodly way, in an unfaithful way, if someone is caving to opposition... No, we must admonish each other and lead each other and instruct each other in this, but we must be careful not to rush into judgment. Now, main question here in all of this is, how does this refine the church? After all, that's the text for this morning's sermon that God uses persecution to spread the gospel, but the emphasis here is that Through persecution, he refines the church. What we've seen so far, maybe you could characterize as mere survival. The church is scraping by. The church at least isn't destroyed. But how can we make the leap to saying that this is very clearly a blessing for the people of God, what they're going through? Well, God says quite a bit to us about how we ought to view hardship. He says quite a bit to us about what he is busy with, what he is doing in our lives when we encounter difficulties. We know that God governs all things, that there is absolutely nothing outside of his providence, and so persecutions are even included in that. Persecutions are even completely governed by the providence of God. We also know that Whatever God does, he does in the first place for the glory of his own name, but he's also doing all things for the good of his children, for everyone who belongs to him. This is a foundational belief that we have. Romans 8 verse 28, we know that in all things, not just most things, not just some things, but all things, everything, God works for the good of those who love him. This is a comfort that we must cling to. One of our readings was Hebrews chapter 12. How do we welcome the hardship that God is pleased to bring into our lives? We read there, verse 6, Hebrews 12, verse 6 For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons, for what son is not disciplined by his father? Now in this passage there are references to our father's rebuke, to receiving punishment from him because of misdeeds, because of sinfulness, but this is not the only form of discipline that there is. We tend to think of discipline only in a, in a negative sort of uh, uh, reactive way. We do something wrong, and now here comes some discipline to straighten us out. No, discipline is a much more broad and, and multifaceted category of, of act. Discipline is, we have to see also in, rela- in, in light of its related word, discipleship. Discipleship. Discipline isn't just about punishment, but it's also about very positive strengthening and teaching and schooling. It's being refined and, and perfected through hardships when you are tested you are refined this is something that we read in verse 2 of the same chapter so chapter 12 verse 2 we are looking to jesus and and what is he called he is called the founder and the perfecter of our faith the perfecter of our faith the refiner of our faith who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. When you are tested, you are refined. Your Father, your Heavenly Father, is refining you and perfecting you by using painful and challenging lessons that require you to depend on Him. This is like the Father's instructive care that we sang about in Psalm 119 how good it was for me to suffer pain so that in all your ways you might school me God teaches us how to live and respond in a faithful way in an obedient way in the midst of persecution or hardship where we're tempted to take the easy route this is exactly what James, the Apostle James, writes in his letter. James 1, verse 2. After his greeting, this is the very first thing he writes. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith, right, this pressure, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And then he says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete or perfect not lacking anything jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith james is teaching that hardship is the thing that god uses in order to refine and perfect our faith now here's a question who is james who is the one who is writing this exhortation here well he was an apostle who went through the very persecution that we're reading about this morning he was there james was there he went through it james was the pastor the elder of the jerusalem church he's writing this under the inspiration of the holy spirit but he's not just a puppet james is also god is making use of the experiences that james has had in order to teach the church. He has led people through this. And James has seen what the Lord has done for the church through hardship. He's seen it. The church is being refined through a discipline of love. They're being brought up and taught and schooled by our Heavenly Father. Their Heavenly Father is our Heavenly Father. We we worship the same God. He shapes us and, and, and refines us in the same way he is unchanging what a beautiful thing to reflect on even even in the moment as James teaches consider it pure joy when this comes upon you why do we consider it joy why isn't it just something that you know what we just have to grit our teeth and get through it and it will be better later no we we have to rejoice in this why because it's it's also proof that you that you belong to Christ God is equipping you to bear this up and to be refined by it. If it's something, if it's, if it's all-out persecution, then you know that the persecutors are not against you because they care about you so much, because you're such an important person. No, it's because they're against Christ. It's because they're against Jesus. And you have the honor of being lumped in with Jesus. You are associated with him. What an honor. What an honor. This is a sharing in his sufferings like he calls us to do. But if it's not persecution, if it's something else, if it's, if it's some other sort of hardship, if it's sickness, if it's loneliness, if someone has betrayed you, if you are experiencing poverty, any kind of difficulty, we have to know, we have to believe wholeheartedly, this is a foundational belief, That these things are purifying us from something. Purifying us in some way from living apart from God. Somehow, to some degree. These things teach us to trust in Him alone. These things prove the Father's love for us. You are able to trust that the challenge that God gave you is for your benefit. If your health is troubling you right now, what are you learning? What are you realizing? You're learning so much that you are helpless on your own, that that your life is, is but a breath. You know that you must rely on the Lord for your health and for your strength. If you are persecuted What are you learning? You must trust in the Lord, and God will carry you through, and He will strengthen you, and He will show Himself to you in all His love and His power. Your faith will be refined through it. If you are sad, if your heart is broken, if you are experiencing some kind of loss, ask your Father to comfort you and he will comfort you and he will give you his peace and his joy. In all these things, God is proving himself to you and your faith is being strengthened. So that even the worst conditions of life, you are reminded that you are not your own, but you belong, body and soul, in life and in death, in hardship to your faithful savior, Jesus Christ. So you can say in your sadness and in your trouble that it is well with your soul. Even though such and such is happening, it is well with your soul. You can say this because you belong to Christ. You can say this because of his sacrifice. There's the very well-known hymn, Peace Like a River. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. It is well with the church. It is well with my soul. Amen. Let's sing now from